Welcome to Life at the School, episode 83. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are they doing in the future. Uh, this episode, I sit down with Michael Murray. Mike Murray is a biology teacher at Pembroke High School in Pembroke, Massachusetts. Mike has also worked as an adjunct instructor at Massasoit Community College, where he teaches anatomy and physiology and biological principles. Mike is very involved in the New England PD community, regularly participating in workshops from the MGen Biotech Experience, Mass Bioed Foundation, Mini PCR, and Cold Spring Harbor Lab. He also serves as a reader for the AP Biology exam, has led professional development for AP Biology teachers on behalf of College Board and Mass Insight, and he is one of the co-founders of the New England area AP Biology PLC. You can follow him on Twitter, at Murray Biology. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is like breaking my rule of only talking to you at in Kansas City. Um <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, like we hang unless out. You, unless you show up at MIT with the beard and really throw me off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've kept the beard all all winter. Uh, so <laughs> since uh, since last winter, I've actually regrew it back over the summer, and I started the school year with it. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, Mike and I teach. I don't know, not too far apart. You know, within what a lot of people would consider pretty, you know, pretty close proximity and then like see each other maybe once or twice a year. And then we hang out for a week in Kansas city when we go to the AP read. So, um, <laughs> it's uh it's good to talk to you in the middle of the year. This is probably gonna be our longest form conversation until, until we get back to Kansas city. So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, we're, uh, I know you're not going to go to NABT, but we're re recording this right before I head off to NABT. Um, and this will be our episode that comes out at the end of November. And that's going to be really good for us because I know that um, I, I put you as the co one of the co-founders of the AP Biology PLC as if I wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> but, but we're planning a meeting. Yeah. We're planning our, our meeting for early December. So uh, we'll share some links and, uh, and talk a little bit about that for other people in the New England area who might want to join us for our December meeting meaning i'm really looking forward to that it's one of the coolest things i think i've we've done um so yeah, yeah. looking forward to talking about it as well yeah so how's your year been going so far it's going really well i have awesome kids um as always we're we're really pushing the science practices this year um i'm excited with the new format of the ap um resources that are on ap classroom i'm really trying to utilize those as much as i can um and just just enjoying it, enjoying the heck out of the year. So yeah, yeah, I definitely um, kids are always you? yeah kids are always the best part, and um, I feel like there's so many moving parts that are going on this year because we've adopted a new schedule, um, and so like everything I'm teaching is so different. But uh, similar to you, I feel like um, I've been very practice focused on everything this year, um, which has been um, very exciting and different and new, and um, I'm. 
I'm interacting with the kids in a different way when it comes to really talking more about, you know, what can they do and their practices and how do they grow in their practices as opposed to really trying to, you know, worry too much about content. And I feel like a lot of my colleagues are on board for that uh, for the first time ever. So um, it's been it's been a lot of fun, but uh, the logistics of a new schedule are kind of exhausting. Um, so uh, I, I'm looking forward to like getting some downtime, you know, maybe after the year or during one of the breaks to sit back and reflect a little bit more because right now it feels like the year is moving at like 100 miles an hour all the time. So Yeah, definitely, definitely feeling, feeling that as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, the the pace this year has has been feeling kind of nutty. So I'm this is one of those reasons. Not that I don't always look forward to NABT, but I think that that's going to be that downtime where I'm going to be, you know, sitting in a room with other people and like I'll be away from the classroom for a few days, and it really will be my first sort of decompress and reflect window that I've had where I don't have like, you know, I will put my grades in and my comments in right before I leave for my quarter one comments. Um, so it'll be the first time I really sit down where I don't have a pile of grading and a ton of stuff and I will just be in learner mode. Uh, so I think I'll feel very differently, you know, a week from now having had that reflection time. So Yeah, I'm upset. I'm upset with myself. I couldn't pull that off this year, but I, it was just, it was too much this year. I'm going to definitely yeah. try and get there next year. So yeah, it's a little closer Looking forward to that. Well, you not going meant that you didn't try to twist my arm to drive out there because I, I do recall uh, there was a, convers- a conversation in Kansas City where something about we'll get a van and uh, drive over. And I was like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I think I think you're missing out on an excellent road trip. <laughs> yeah, I just I picture being broken down in Ohio with you and you're like, but we have the bikes. And I'm going to be like, I hate bikes. Um, so. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the question I like to start everyone with, because I actually do know this story a little bit from you because you've told me this story. Uh, you were one of the more entertaining uh, start of career uh, <laughs> storytellers, because uh, I, I have a in my mind what your story is going to be. Uh, but I'd love to hear have you tell other people what it was like, you know, you, this very experienced teacher. Uh, what was it like when you started to become a teacher? Uh, what got you into classroom and, and sort of what were your initial experiences as a teacher? So we'll, I guess we'll start the story uh, way back. This is 26 or so years ago. I was a um, I was out of college, out of Bridgewater uh, State College at the time, with a biology degree and a minor in chemistry. And I um, had took a job as a park ranger in Boston, which was a wonderful job. Um, I was actually a mounted park ranger, so I rode the horses around the city. And um, the writing was on the wall that they wouldn't need as many park rangers through the winter and it was getting very cold um, and the boots had no insulation and um, my girlfriend at the time suggested I apply for a teaching job and so I did I applied for a job at um, Cardinal Spellman in Brockton and I didn't get that job um, but I got the job in a neighboring town who had a teacher resign somewhere in October and so or it may even have been late September and so I got a job at Silver Lake High School mm-hmm. in Kingston, Mass, which is where I now live. Um, and it was it was a tough year. And you know, as the year went on, I learned why that teacher um, resigned in September <laughs> very quickly. So, um, and I, you know, it it was very rewarding. Uh, but as after the first week and you know first month or so, I started to get my feet under me um, because on the very very first day I, I told the principal I couldn't I couldn't do it 
<laughs> and that I was, <laughs> I was quitting. <laughs> um, and then he said, can you make it through the day? And then um, at the end of the day, I went to see him and he said, can you make it through the week? And I think um, what he put into play behind the scenes was just a, a series of supports for me. Um, other teachers, you know, unbeknownst to me, you know, hey, Mike, how you doing? What do you need help with? Things like that, that um, at the time, I'm sure I wasn't aware of. Um, but just support to help me um, learn the building, learn the trade, um, learn the, you know, in in some aspects later on in the year, learn the learn the craft and the um, the art, you know, that is running a classroom. So uh, that was it from the that was the first job, and then um, spent six years teaching at Silver Lake High School, and then I went on to teach at Norwell High School for six years, becoming the department head there, and then I took a job in Pembroke after six years in Norwell. Um, and I've been there ever since. Yeah. I just, I, I can envision like a lot of new teachers thinking about what it would be like to, at the end of your first day, going to your principal and saying, yeah, I don't think I can do this. Um, <laughs> I think about like, basically walked away. Yeah. Um, and we've, you know, I, I'm sure you have as well. I, I've taught and I can think back of people who started the school year with us and, you know, they didn't make it a few weeks, you know, they, they, they started in and a couple weeks later, they, they walked away or, um, in a couple of cases were asked not to come back anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, to have like the awareness of yourself of saying, yeah, I don't think I can do this. And, and then twisting your arm a little bit. And then you end up staying there for six years is, is kind of a funny turn of events for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good story. Yeah. So, <laughs> and not every principal, I mean, credit to that principal too. Like, uh, that's a principal who, who clearly saw some stuff because I mean, there, there's teachers who, if they, if they came to me after, you know, a day and were like, yeah, I couldn't do this. I'd be like, all right, you know, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> yeah. We, you're a warm body. We can yeah. find another warm body, yeah. so, but, uh, you're yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, clearly they, they had a, they, they decided that they were going to make that investment. Um, and, and as you said, orchestrated some stuff from behind the back, uh, behind the scenes. Um, and then, so, I mean, your background wasn't really in teaching then if you had a biology degree and a chemistry minor. And I'm, I'm old enough to know that at that time, it wasn't a huge step to get a teaching uh, license. So what did you have to do to get your teaching license back then? So then um, from there, I, I, it was sort of a, I think they called it the, um, the post-baccalaureate program. So I did take a few credits at Bridgewater um, a few more courses to get an initial licensure. Mm -hmm. uh, I also needed three years of experience to do that. Um, then I got my, once I had my initial licensure, or once I had those three years in, I could apply for, you know, professional licensure or whatever it was. Um, so it did, it took a little bit of, you know, jumping through hoops and uh, forms with the state uh, department of ed. Um, but it ended up coming together fine. I don't, you know, I think, I think student teaching would have been beneficial to me, but at the time that, um, when I went to Bridgewater, I declared my biology major late. So it took me five years to get through the program mm -hmm. because I declared in my, I declared in my sophomore year and it's pretty much locked up. Yeah. Uh, it's a freshman, you know, start a biology degree as a freshman. And so, um, 
so for that reason, I, I just couldn't do five and a half. I just needed, I needed to be done with college. Um, and so I graduated with the chem minor. I think they called it a concentration in education, which is what probably got my foot in the door mm. to the schools. Um, but yeah, because it wasn't a teaching degree, I had to jump through a few hoops. Um, and then, um, and then I was off to the races once I had my master's degree, which was about, about you know, seven years later or so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as I said, that, that changed, it's interesting, the timing of when you were doing that, because it was during that time that you were getting your master's when all of the rules were changing. So had you, you know, started teaching after you got the master's, you would have had to take a teaching test and, um, the licensing yeah, would have had all sorts exactly. of different labels and stuff like that. So, um, I know I felt like I was, I was riding the crest of a wave that was right around that same time. Um, cause I started teaching 24 years ago. Um, and so I know what the licensure rules were back then because that was when I was graduating college and, you know, getting my master's degree as well. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a di very different time, I think, for somebody who has gotten their licensing within the last, you know, certainly the last 15 years. Um, it was a very different landscape because uh, it was suddenly all of these baby boomers were starting to retire. Um, and schools were like, wait, we got to figure out how to get some people in here. Um, and so they were a little bit people, more forgiving. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, a little more forgiving. Yeah. So, so now you're not, you're not back at that time. You're like on the total other end of it and you're like running all of this PD. I know when we, we talk, you know, whether it's at the, the New England, uh, uh, AP Biology PLC or at the Reed or when we run into each other um, during the winter, you're off going to do uh, running PD for AP Biology teachers. Um, and so I know that's a when you run PD, you get a very different perspective on what you do in the classroom. So so how has uh, running this PD specifically for AP teachers sort of impacted your your teaching practice? And, and what is it like to to be on the other side now as sort of the the expert veteran <laughs> it's funny um that you say that it and you know i it's it's very um nerve-wracking um it is humbling i think is the is the most accurate term to describe um what it's like because i i know that when i go into the room it's you know i am i am not, not the best teacher in that room and i i don't i don't want to seem um in any way that I am, because I, you know, sometimes you go into the room and you'll have teachers with, you know, 25, 30 years of experience um, who just, you know, do amazing things in their own classrooms. And I think the first and the most important thing for me to do is to understand that I'm not, I'm not the best teacher in that room, but we can grow as a, as a community you know, and to, to create that community of learners, um, you know, particularly with, um, you know, making it a place that everyone feels uh, safe to share, um, and then channeling that that sharing around uh, the agenda of the day, um, so that we don't lose sight of you know kind of where the ship is going. I kind of see the I'm, I'm driving the boat, um, but you know certainly with with all the kind of experience in the room that you get with these things, um, I, I certainly think that um, that the, the people in the room are more important than than what I have to offer. Um, but it is, it is fascinating and it is, um, it is, you know, it's a huge honor that, that people would ask me to do it. So I guess that's where I go with it. Um, how has it changed my teaching? 
um, I just I think I just get great ideas from other teachers. Um, you know, just all kinds of stuff from, you know, just just all kinds of little tips and tricks um, that uh, that to just help me, you know, in my in my day to day life that I would have never gotten had I not um, had I not led the workshop. Mm-hmm. Like clickers, for example, I use clickers all the time mm-hmm. uh, with my kids. It's a quick little resource for formative assessment. And, you know, it, it came up at one of my PDs. I said, what's that? Flickers? Oh, okay. And, you know, just jotted it down. And sure enough, it's just a really helpful resource for me to quickly see where my kids are on a topic. Uh, I can do a five-question multiple-choice survey just to see where they are. Um, mm. So it's, you know, kind of a fun little – but it's a great way to get better, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think the the other thing that you talk about in terms of like the the thing that's tough, um, because everybody who's in that room isn't always there for the same reason either. So like, you know, sometimes you're running things and somebody like signed up and sometimes you've got people who came to the room because, you know, they were, you know, voluntold to show up at this workshop. Um, and, and that's, and that's a a particularly tough challenge because like, if they are already sort of predisposed to be like, I'm being forced to be here, um, and you don't know all the background and the politics and all that stuff in there, uh, but you still need that to be a rewarding experience for the community of learners that you have in front of you, regardless of the reasons that they all ended up in the room together you still want them all to you know gain from that experience exactly yeah and that that can be absolutely challenging um and you know you try to you try to work that that angle hey you know i know you may not want to be here but um you know i I think we can all get something out of this and you know let's be professionals here and you know you try to try to try to work it um just try to be convincing as to what what they can get out of the day rather than what they what they probably don't want to get out of the day. Um, yeah, yeah. So. I'm I'm curious if you if you get ever get any pushback from like the you know people who teach in like uh you know a, an inner city school and they're like ah uh, you out in your suburbs um, and that because I know I actually have gotten that um, back a little pushback from that when I've run things that people have told me like oh you don't know what it's like to teach in in my environment because where you teach is so different Um, and while some of those things are true um, I'm curious if that that ever comes up that dynamic because um, I know your teaching experience is more diverse than you know your current teaching environment and you've taught with a variety of different levels of kids and different challenging situations, but do you ever feel like um, you have to like prove yourself as to somebody who knows how to deal with different communities? Yeah, I do. I actually, I use that a lot. I kind of, I kind of push that, you know, things are certainly different. And I think the biggest, I think the biggest change, you know, I I push the kids are kids. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the kids in your classroom, it's your room. You make it a safe space for your kids to take chances and you know that's your responsibility as a teacher and i think the biggest um the the biggest difference between one school and the next a lot of the times is budget you know is hey you know here's this you know mini pcr or here's this um even even a carolina biological uh fast plants uh -hmm. kit that costs you know a hundred dollars and that might be the teacher's entire biology budget. And for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm stomping my feet saying, why didn't I get this fast enough? And for them, it's the only thing that they can pull off in the year. So I think um, when I come to the table with resources, 
um, that, you know, like the, the Amgen biotech experience and ways for teachers to um, get things free or cheap, uh, the New England biological, things like that. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, this is this is a way for us to get through this on the cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that brings a lot to the table because I think that's really um, that teacher who works at that inner city school's biggest challenge is, is kind of fighting with their administration to get um, the, the high level um, activities that they need for their kids. And, and that, that's a struggle. I, I absolutely give them, you know, I think you, you have to give them credit. Like that, that is a struggle. Um, uh, but, but the goal is to get better for everybody, you know? So nice. that's kind of what I, yeah. what I push, yes. you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, you've opened up the door of... That's my mantra. (laughs) You've opened up the door of one of the things that you do that I actually don't do, which um, is weird because I think I I pride myself on being the person who, no matter what anybody brings up, I've probably done that thing um, in my classroom. Like, oh, yeah, I've done that before. Oh, yeah, I went to that workshop. Uh, But you do this, uh, this lab called Teaching the Genome Generation, uh, with Jackson Labs, um, and that's a it's a project you brought up a little bit. I think we we were discussing a little bit last winter when we were at that mini PCR workshop, um, and I know that you brought it up at least uh, one of the times we were at the read, um, one of our conversations. And I didn't really dive in uh, too much about it, but um, how did you get involved with this project, and and what is this teaching the genome generation uh, series that you got involved in? So. So um, what it is, is a series of, uh, well, it was a, it was a five-day workshop that I took in um, Connecticut. Um, I'm not sure that was a bit Trinity, maybe it was Trinity College, uh, which is just outside of one of Jackson Labs facilities in, um, can't think of the town that their Connecticut um, lab is in, but they used to do it in Bar Harbor up Mm -hmm. in Maine. Um, and so I signed up for it, you know, I just put my name in, um, I signed up for the one in Maine and then they said, Hey, we don't have a spot in Maine, but we have one in Connecticut. Would you like to do that? And I said, sure. Um, and then this was the year that I had a stroke. Um, so I said, sure, I'll do it. And then I had a stroke and I was out for quite a while. Um, and then I came back to it. Um, and I, and I still sort of, I went and I, and I participated and, you know, it sort of came up in conversation <laughs> when I was there, um, you know, that I had an interesting spring and whatnot. Uh, but they, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll run you through the workshop. It's, it's effectively, uh, a series of labs and I'll get to the labs in a minute, but, but also, um, an entire, um, series of lessons on bioethics. Um, and so they go from, um, you know, the beginnings of, of biology and how, you know, the, the entire kind of concept of biology was, was a whole, a whole bunch of the folks that are in it around this idea of eugenics and we can make the human race better and mm. this and that. And, um, in the, you know, forced sterilizations and a number of different things that have, kind of been around um, and and you you kind of investigate those things with kids and you talk about where would you expect to see this, you know, in Nazi Germany or in the United States and they all sort of answer Nazi Germany and, and sure enough, here we are and it, it was happening in the U.S. up until not so many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look around and you you talk to them about bioethics and what's, what's 
what's possible now and you know what's what's appropriate and what's right um and you know like the, the gamut in biotech is being pushed you know to the point where we're editing genomes and um and just to just to ask the question okay sh should we be doing this um you know i think is a, is a valid question for our kids especially in high school as they're developing you know their entire moral compass and um sort of you know, leaving, I wouldn't say leaving what mom and dad have given them from our compass, but, but, you know, seeing new things out there in the world and, and making their own judgments on things that maybe never got brought up in their home. Um, so that's a huge part of the teaching the genome generation, but also there are labs that allow them to take a gene um, and amplify that gene uh, the gene has some clinical significance. Um, uh, the one that we look at is CYP2C19, I think it is. Um, and it's, it's effectively a, a gene that influences your ability to metabolize certain drugs. Mm. So my students, my students receive two big boxes uh, from FedEx. Uh, the boxes contain... Um, everything to do these labs uh, micropipetters micropipet tips um, the reagents um, to run a pcr reaction on their genes um, the reagents to isolate their dna prior to that um, and then once they've run a pcr of their cyp2c19 then they will um, do a restriction digest on it to see if they are um, you know, of one uh, genotype or another. And then if they have good product that got, um, we run a gel on that uh, restriction digest. And if they have good product on that gel, um, then we use the other part of their, their PCR sample and we send it up to Jackson Labs and they get, um, they get sequencing data on their own genes, which is like, you know, for me, it's absolutely mind blowing because I, you know, I started, you know, my, the extent of genetics in college was, uh, you know, fruit fly work, um, yeah. crossing, you know, find, you know, getting up on Saturday morning to find the virgin females and all of that. Um, and so for me, it's been, you know, if it weren't for resources like, like this and, um, you know, Harvard's outreach, um, I would have never had this you know, education. So, it's, so these kind of things are really, really beneficial. And this one in particular is just, it's just, um, awesome because everything is there and um, I take a week out of my regular curriculum and we run through these labs um, and of course it's always the week that we have you know <laughs> field trip here or there um, but we we, get, we end up getting it done so yeah well, as, as you were saying it, it reminds me a little bit of the um, the PTC lab that um, that Alia has been working on through Harvard Life Science outreach the last couple of years where it is that classic PTC tasting um, lab. But starting last year, I was one of the groups of students who were able to send our sequences off um, after the restriction digest, and we sent off for sequencing. And students were able to get their DNA sequences back and analyze those. And uh, exactly what you said, like, I I've been trying to get sequenceable data back from my students in their hands for, for years. Um, you know, people started making this promise that we could do it. I don't know. I feel like it was like eight to 10 years ago, people were starting to say that it was possible, but 
that was the first time. It's just in the last couple of years that I've been able to get back sequences that the kids um, did all the lab work. And in this case with PTC, it's their genes. Um, did you have any pushback from people about uh, like sort of the privacy of having students getting back yeah. their own sequences? So what I did with that, because um, we're, we're hot on the trails of that uh, bioethics piece, is I randomized their DNA. So um, from uh, the work they initially do, once they've, they've isolated the DNA, we actually will, we'll, you know, we throw numbers in and the students don't get back their own individual sample. They'll be working on other people's DNA samples. So they don't actually know who has what genotype, hmm. uh, which... Um, they still see it as their DNA sample. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I just, I guess I like that privacy aspect of it um, in, the, in the time that we live in, that, that um, no one actually knows what their, what their DNA is. Um, and, and they still get the opportunity to, um, to run through these labs, so. Yeah, I'm I'm a little torn on it. I feel I feel like I see both sides on it. Um and we did not randomize last year um so that students could see their own um in terms of their PTC tasting sequences. Um and I I'm torn because of the fact that like they could all send out their DNA to a company like 23andMe and get it back um and that would be totally like you know, free of any ethical discussions or, or that sort of thing. Um, I, I just wonder if that, that randomization and personalization piece, um, if you, if you depersonalize a little bit, um, if the kids will still get the same bang for the buck. Um, but I also see the flip side. I, I, I almost did it last year, but I didn't. Um, and, and we decided to not randomize, but we're getting ready to do this lab again. And I, in my mind, I'm wondering whether or not we should randomize them. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me. Um, like like you said, I, I am torn to some degree uh, because it is personal information that they could gain about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just feel like when you open the box, then, well, then now they know. Not that any insurance company is going to deny them access to this or that, but, but where it is a, you know, with, with the tasting lab, I think you're looking at, oh, well, I can taste bitter or not. And with this, it's looking at their ability to, metabolize drugs and so I, I just think it becomes a little bit more of a um, more of an issue because it affects the way that they may be treated um, mm. uh, and I guess you know by by a health insurance company I guess um, down you know 10 years down from the line not that they're ever going to get access to this information um, but I just that was kind of why I stayed with the randomizing piece because it, it had you know uh, medical significance i guess yeah i can i can appreciate that i mean i i as i said it's it's one of those things where um i i talked you know we talked about it and i've talked with other people and they're like oh absolutely randomized and i know people who randomize their ptc data um and and i wonder about it but i think i might just have a little bit more of a robust conversation in class um and i almost wonder whether or not like that decision should be in the hands of the students about whether or not we randomize or not um, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. And I and I and I haven't yeah. figured out how to logistically do that, but that's that's sort of in my in my head about I about whether or not we should have that discussion about randomization and and a decision about that and you know, 
at what standard would it be if there were was a, a percentage of the population who who because the kids could opt out like kids didn't have to send their sequences in that was an option um but there was also the option for students to like what if they wanted to randomize like that would be something that we probably could accommodate um I don't know. I think it's something that I've I wasn't as aware of maybe two years ago um, when it was just a hypothetical that we'd randomize, you know, that we'd get the DNA back. But now that we have it, I think these ethical questions are um, are good ones to have for students, and maybe even better when it's something low stakes like PTC, um, as opposed to something right. that is medical. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. so what was your students' reaction and experience with this? How how did they react to this this lab series? Um, I think they really enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a push. Um, so we had done as freshmen, they run through the um, the Amgen Biotech experience, and mm -hmm. so most of these kids have, you know, understand how to use a microbiopeter, understand the concept of PCR. Um, they haven't done a PCR reaction, mm -hmm. um, but they have done um, you know transformation of bacterial cells, bacterial colonies. Um, and, and so for them, it is, a, it is a big jump up and, you know, they need to be reading ahead. They need to be, you know, getting the work and you can really see which students know what's going on and which students are sort of like hanging back a little bit and maybe didn't, didn't fully comprehend what was in the reading the night before. Um, but the, the one, you know, all of them get quite a bit out of it. And, and, you know, I think the thing with biotechnology is they're, they're doing they're doing real work um i think in and that's one of the benefits of being a life science teacher is that 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 this is really cutting edge stuff that's out there and um you know the the chemistry that we teach our kids and the physics that we teach our kids not to not to put them down but that's you know they're learning stuff that was going you know maybe 50 60 100 years old not that there's anything wrong with that but i think there's real life implications for like like we just discussed um for biotech and you know the fact that they're doing it they really you know it's, it's jaw-dropping to to i'd say at least 50 percent of them like oh wow this is amazing that this is actually my dna um and that and that i'm i'm gonna get sequence data back and then they actually look at the a's t's g's and c's and they're, you know, and they're sort of blown away. Um, so I'm, I would say for the for the majority of them, they're really they're really in, in awe of what they're doing in a in a high school biology classroom, and and they should be, you know, when you think about it, because <laughs> um, it's amazing what what we can do with them. Um, so I would say, yeah, it, it's a it's a great experience for them, and I think the the conversations about bioethics are also really powerful because that's the world that they're living in. The decisions that are going to be made um, for them or by them um, as, as, the, as the years go on here, as we get more and more. Yeah, I, I was literally on the path. I was literally just listening to the um, uh, the most recent This American Life, and they were talking about uh, like people who were getting human growth hormone uh, injections for their children because they were going to be like below average in height. Um, and while that's not necessarily 100% eugenics, that's pretty eugenic adjacent um, that like yeah. people are injecting like 
12 and 13 and 14-year-olds with human growth hormone when they don't really know the impact of what that's going to have on like if there's a medical impact that's going to happen 30 years down the line there's been no long-term studies there's been nothing that and there's you know marginal gain that you could get it's not medical gain it's very cosmetic um, and unknown medical risk but there's people making those decisions today um, yeah based off of these like superficial um, views of you know what ideal the ideal human should be um, in terms of height right um, so I think a lot yeah. of it's not it's not a lot of a stretch to talk about you know eugenic principles and how those things are manifesting um, in a even a more technical um, clinical manner today um, it's a lot of the same conversations and driving motivations that were happening in the you know 20s and 30s um, that are that are happening now you know almost 100 years later yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I taught bioethics for for several years, and um, I I always found it very interesting how um, topical <laughs> all of the historical eugenic conversation was, and how easy it was to to connect modern events to that, and and that was before even the the CRISPR um, explosion that we've had in the last couple of years. So, yeah, it's absolutely amazing what we. What we can do, um, you know, one of the things in Jackson Labs, and you know, there's some of them that for me, they're just, yeah, we sh this this just should be done. Um, with a uh, one of the Jackson Labs um, technologies that I left that workshop with was um, how they did um, stool genome sampling for um, uh, premature babies, so you know that the they could predict. Um, so they take the, the diapers of preemies and they'd sequence that uh, to see what kind of uh, gut microbes were in there mm. and, and get ahead of the curve if any of those were potentially harmful. Um, so they could do you know, smaller doses of antibiotics to bring those populations down, basically doing population ecology on um, preemies' guts, um, which, which to me was like, wow, this is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And... And you know, life saving uh, for these for these little kids um, that that are so fragile. Um, and so you know, you see things like that, and you're like, oh, absolutely, we should do this. And then you see other things, uh, and you say, well, well, you know, you just pause and say, maybe maybe this isn't the best option, like you said with the growth hormone. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's just fascinating conversation to have with high school kids because they don't. You know their perspective is just so different. I always I always introduce the topic with them, you know, and I always joke around and say something like, "Well, you know, 30 years from now, when you're all ready to have kids, and you know that 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 tends to cause a laugh and some discomfort with each of them." Um, but but then you sort of see their minds kind of getting around the idea that they may actually have children someday, and they may choose to not. And I always put that put that out there, but. Um, it's just a really cool conversation to have um, with kids as you can see them and looking at their future and saying, yeah, maybe I do want to have kids or maybe not. Uh, because I, I think it's a, it's, it's sort of awe inspiring to see, you know, in your students, what is out there for them, that, that great, that great beyond of everything that they're capable of and, and the future that they can have um, just as they sit in your classroom. So.
Yeah, and they all bring yeah. in their their own sort of perspective, and yeah, you know, I was gonna say almost like their baggage to it because they'll all have their own experiences. I remember I had a student in bioethics who had been um, a very extreme preemie, um, had been a preemie at uh, I want to say she was a preemie at like twenty six weeks, um, and this is like you know we're talking about like late eighties, early nineties at twenty six weeks, like to the point where those those babies didn't survive and if they did they had lifelong medical issues and she was like the exception um and they would go back and she had a lot of hospitalizations early on and she had a lot of medical interventions but was a completely happy healthy 17 year old high school senior going to graduate going to go to college but she also had connections back with the hospital and other kids she grew up with and kids she knew as kids who never overcame those medical interventions and were in wheelchairs or were not in, you know, regular education schools, were not going on to college. And so when we would talk about, you know, the the life-saving care and, and some of the medical things that we'd go on, she brought in this personal story that you would never get that out of a kid, you know, if you didn't bring up these conversations. Um, you know, if you just sort of right. taught your typical biology, here's all the stuff that you need to know and here's the test. Um, so the stories of the students also really have a huge impact on on the perspectives and um, the ability for students to um, maybe reconsider the value positioning of people who who have lived different experiences than, than them. And even if they wouldn't make the same choices of others, they can gain some empathy in their decision making, which... Honestly, if there's one thing I could make better people who graduate from high school to be more empathetic, um, even if they don't agree with other people, if they could gain empathy, that would, for me, be a huge win. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's I, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'll have to peek in and, and I, I put the link in the show notes. I'll definitely uh, look forward to see if they're going to continue. I know that they they were on a grant and those grants tend to go in five year increments. So I don't know if they've got anything planned for 2020, but uh, I'll have to keep keep an eye out to see if they've got any more running in the years to come, because it looks like a yeah, def- cool definitely a worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, and that's again one of those ones where it's it's uh, funded um, through through government grants, so it was not massive out of pocket for you. Um, they just sent no, you stuff. it wasn't. It was um, they actually I gave, I got a little stipend out of that. Oh wow! Believe it or not, it was a it was a five day, and they paid you a little stipend, and then everything comes every year. Um, you just you know you put in your request, and the entire lab set shows up at your door. So. Um, it, again, it's one of those things Now Pembroke doesn't, you know, we, we do okay in terms of our science budget, but, um, it, that's certainly, you know, a lightening of the load when, when basically every AP bio biotech lab is, is sent to me for, you know, for free. Um, uh, that certainly helps overall budget of the district, you know, of the, of the department anyhow. So, yeah. And I mean, so it's, it's a win. And for me, like a lot of people would look at my school and be like, oh, you're absolutely one of the haves. And and in a lot of ways we are. Um, at the same time, we have um, five sections of AP biology and we run six sections of lab. Um, so like if I don't rely on outreach, I will strip my budget out, even though my budget's bigger than most. Um, you know, I got 125 kids taking AP biology. Um, if I don't yeah. use if I don't use, uh, you know, the, you know, the Amgen biotech experience and and other outreach type 
um, resources, um, I can't run a very dynamic program uh, because I need programs like this that will supply me with stuff um, to help offset the costs to put it in everybody's hands. Because I, I literally could, I, it ends up running like a shoestring budget. Even though I don't run a shoestring budget, I have to stretch it to all of those sections. Right. So yeah, we exactly, run, yeah. We run ten sections of honors biology, <laughs> you know, like yeah. So like it, the, you know, over two hundred kids in honors bio. So like yeah, it's you know, we got a little more money than most people, but I gotta really make that stuff go. So these outreach things are, are really great to know about. So, all yeah. right, well let's get to uh, let's get to our our New England area AP Biology PLC. Um, I had these annoying people messaging me while I was trying to do my run yesterday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so let's talk about this thing. Uh, so we've officially planned our second meeting. It's going to take place on December 7th. It's going to be at Ursuline Academy in Dedham, Massachusetts. It's going to run from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. There'll be a lunch break thrown in there. Uh, so like what, you know, maybe we talk a little bit about, you know, like, you know, uh, what went into getting this thing started and maybe like, what are you hoping to get out of, you know, I think we're planning on having what, two more meetings later on this year, you know, the December one, and then maybe one in the spring. So what are you hoping to get out of these, these PLC meetings as well? Uh, so I think it stretches back to, um, my history, you know, as a, as a rookie teacher, I think, um, I, I as a, as a rookie teacher, I was overwhelmed with just the, the entire classroom idea. And then, when I went on to teach uh, AP Biology for the first time, I had a student um, who corrected my water molecule that I drew on the board. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, she said, Mr. Murray, that's, you know, it's like a 90 degree angle. It's really like 104.6 or whatever the number is. And, um, you know, you, you forget what it's like to be a rookie AP teacher after you've done it for a while. And I just, I think it's a, it's a great resource for people to get together and find um, opportunities like we just said, um, teaching, teaching the genome generation, what mini PCR has to offer, what Amgen has to offer. And then I think our big one, you know, coming up to, uh, in December is to really get around this AP classroom and how it can help us help our kids to develop those science practices. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's my big, um, goal for the, uh, for the December one. And then I think, we can we can look at maybe stats some more in the spring. Mm. Um, of course, you, you know how this got all got started. You and I had talked for a year prior to getting this <laughs> together about how we could how we could get something like this going, and we finally um, we finally got uh, got our rear ends in gear when we when we saw Lee Ferguson talk um, at the AP read about how we can actually run a PLC. Um, so that was inspiring enough for us to get our first one done this summer. Of course, we couldn't have done it without um, the help of, of Valerie and uh, Todd Ryan. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, I think that I think I, I feel like I should be doing more for the logistics side of things. Um, but it's really cool to be a part of this. Um, the, the idea that we can we can help other AP Bio teachers out for for zero dollars, just just the cost of getting themselves to to the workshop, um, I think is, is beneficial for the entire community. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because we, we were talking about it and I just knew that the, when we started this whole conversation, I was like, this would be a really good idea, but I do not have the space to hold this and I do not have the bandwidth to set this up. And, um, and yeah, we were both very fortunate that, that Lee 
Um, and I think it was from a conversation, you know, I had talked to Lee Ferguson about what she had done and some of the other people who had worked with her um, down, um, like Barry Eyed, who also works with that da- um, that Dale- Dallas um, area um, PLC that, that Lee really, you know, is the driving force behind. And, um, and, and so Lee sat down and basically it was, you know, in the lobby of the hotel during the AP read one night and just sort of went through logistics. And it was, you know, as you said, you and me, um, and, and, uh, Todd Ryan was there and Valerie May was there and Valerie offered up her school space, um, as the place that we could have that first meeting, which seemed to be like just sort of this watershed moment was like, oh, we have an actual space. And once we had that space, like, you know, the, the rest of the, you know, the four of us could stand up and bloviate about teaching AP biology, like with the best of them. Um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, and so like, I literally did nothing to do the planning on the first meeting. I like just literally showed up and waited for you to tell me what needed to be filled in. And so I filled in a little bit on, you know, like my part of the read and the breakdown of some questions. And then I did some behind the work computer work in there. And I know what you mean about like, you know, many hands lead to light work here. Cause I feel like this has been so much easier um, because it's a group of us who are, you know, I think it's funny. I think we all pester each other a little bit and that's how it's getting done. Like, I sent a message a few weeks ago and I would like ask the question, where are we on this? And then it was like, oh yeah. And then, so somebody sent a message and then somebody else sent a message. And the next thing you know, we're, we're messaging back and forth and we're building an agenda by things we're volunteering to be able to put together. And next thing you know, we've got more than enough to fill, you know, a five hour meeting plus a lunch break. Um, <laughs> you know, I, th- I already think we've got way more uh, than we're going to be able to get through in a particular day. And then, as you said, we, we get great support, you know, um, you know, Seb from mini PCRs already asked us, like, what do you need? How can we help? You know, not just they came out and presented and presented some labs to us during the first time. And I think that's good, you know, uh, you know, good economics from their part to come and do that. But I, I think it's from a genuine place of wanting to help teachers find resources. And like he was not even saying, like, we want to run workshops. It's like, do you guys need snacks? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. uh, he's yeah. like, you know, like, so we have great support in this area. And um, and I think the group of us are, I think, fortunately tied into enough of those things uh, that that this may be the kind of thing that we can make sustainable um, over the next few years. Yeah, I think I think getting the ball rolling was the biggest, um, like you said, watershed moment. Like, okay, here we go. We're 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 just gonna do it. And I know other people have worked harder than me on this. Uh, Valerie and Todd being, um, you know, two of them certainly. But um, just just the idea of getting the ball moving is is really um, pretty wild because, you know, if you look, if I look back on my career you know, 18 years or whatever it's been ago, if I had had a place to go and talk AP biology with people, um, even if it was um, two or three times a year, that would have just been so beneficial for my mental health, for my, um, for my practice in the classroom. Um, and um, so, so I think that's a, that's a great, it's a great opportunity for people, um, even, even just to, to meet others that you can bounce ideas off of. Um, I was part of the, um, the AP Bio mentoring program, and I've had a couple mentees under me for the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think just this this job is hard enough as it is. Um, if we can if we can help each other <laughs> with these sorts of things, I think it's a it's just a benefit to to all of us. Um, so 
Yeah. I think that uh, there definitely is a a feeling of isolation um, for a lot of teachers in their building. And that actually happens, I think, more with the AP teachers. Um, most people are not in a situation like me where I'm one of two AP teachers in a building. Um, I think that's very rare. Um, and beyond that, like, you know, you know, I'm, <laughs> I talk to people all over the country all the time about AP biology, like, and, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm just a person who has a small network that's always there to support me. And early on in my career, similar to what you said, like, I remember, you know, my, my second year teaching, my third year teaching, where I was like, completely on my own, like figuring it out. And I, I could not have taught AP biology back then. Um, meanwhile, I have been yeah. working with, I've been mentoring teachers who are in their second or third year teaching and they are the AP teacher in their building. Um, and that's, yeah. that's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. Like if I, <laughs> I think back to my second year teaching and how <laughs> young and stupid and isolated I was, um, and and yeah. I think on the surface I probably looked very put together, but in retrospect, man, I, I was a train wreck. Um, and I, if yeah, I had been trying, sun, to... and Sundays were the worst. Oh yeah, you remember the Sundays? Like, oh my gosh, what am I doing this week? Yeah, you know what happened? I correct. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and um, you yeah. know, I, I had no responsibility. Like, I didn't have a family or anything. I didn't have to drive anybody anywhere. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a mortgage. I, I just had to teach, and I was right. like totally overwhelmed by that. So, um, I, I, yeah. I, I know these young teachers, and it's. I think their job is, is so much harder now than it was back then. I felt like I was not micromanaged, um, and I still had like no idea what I was doing. So, yeah, I think that. Um, even for the veteran teachers, it's building community is so important um, because not everybody has good community in their building. And for young teachers, it could be a crucial lifeline to help them, you know, get through those early years. And also to be able to feel like they could contribute to community um, is is a really big part of uh, developing your professional identity. So if you can start making these connections and then you can start to build things with other people, that really could um, really, you know, start their the foundation of their career off on the right foot. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and that's, you know, that is one of the rewarding things when, you know, when I do the workshops, um, I do two APSIs and, you know, I start with, you know, you know, thanks for having me. And, you know, this, this is a one week workshop, but, you know, I, I give them my personal email address just to reach out during the school year. Hey, you know, anything at all, just, just shoot me an email. And I, you know, I think that lifeline, um, is very powerful and 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 you know to your other point where where they could contribute back i had one teacher who took one of my labs which is not very well put together it's a it's a catalase uh, measuring uh, generation of oxygen with catalase um, extracted from potatoes and you know she really wrote this up into a dynamite you know handout for students and you know i, I was like blown away by how good it was and you know it it's uh it is cool when they can when they can contribute back just like that you know mm -hmm. all of a sudden this this simple lab that i was doing turned into a document that was more inquiry based and um gave kids good opportunities to to do their science practices um and you could see evidence of that in the document itself so it was really very cool that's so. neat but yeah, yeah I, I think it's a huge opportunity for teachers yeah, I'm looking forward to December. Uh, we won't have Todd with us, but it'll be me, you, and Val um, flying in, in Dedham. 
that's like near your neck of the Should woods. Be good, good times. Right. You yes. Know, you're going to be called out yes, on any yeah. uh, uh, police business. Well, uh, it's like what a couple towns over for you. <laughs> Yeah, a little uh, bit. Yeah, we should be we should be good. We should be safe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, so what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the in the upcoming years? We're we're in the the final uh, we're in the the final third here. Uh, what are you looking forward to in the next? I few know. Years? It, you know, I I um I just got approached by my department head this past week about being a you know having a student teacher under me, mm-hmm. and um, I said yes, and so that I'm looking forward to that in the spring. Um, I'm a little nervous about that because, um, I don't, I don't think I seem like a control freak, but I think I am. (laughs) Um, and that's going to be hard for me to, to let go and to, to watch someone, you know, they're going to make mistakes and to, to help them learn from those mistakes in a, in a kind, warm, nurturing way. Um, I think that's going to be, that's going to be tough for me. I am looking forward to that though, because I, like I said, I, I see myself, so many years ago and that was just such a um such a tough spot to be in that i think if if we can help young teachers as much as we can you know to keep the profession going and to keep the you know to keep biology going because it it really depends on good teachers to to inspire these kids to want to be biologists Hmm. um so i have that to look forward to and you know i'm i'm just i'm just enjoying my kids you know i i'm enjoying pushing their practice as much as I can and, and getting the most out of them. Um, and, and just enjoying the, the, the fun of discovery and of science. Um, I think with, with all the different things that you know, teachers have to do, whether it be goals and, you know, MCAS results and studying this and studying that, I think we, you often lose sight of how fun a day can be when kids are, you know, just looking at the, through the microscope at, at different things that they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're giving, what you're giving them is, is really awe inspiring. That's, that, that's what I really enjoy on the day to day is just, um, you know, making that connection and making, giving them that wow, you know, that they, that they pull off on their own. So. All right. It's very, very, uh, how about, how very about you? me? Um, yeah, I, I I am looking forward to um, uh, slowing down um, the pace of my curriculum um, to to the point where the students really are exploring. Um, I feel like for many, many years we were like just slamming through content and we were flying and we were flying and flying. And then really over the last decade, it's been this slowing down of the curriculum. We've reduced the number of units. We've reduced the number of assessments. We've we've put more time into to lab and that sort of stuff. And every single time we've done it, I was I feel like, yep, we need to do more of that. Like we need to slow down more. And I feel like we're close to the right amount of time for students to really like sit with ideas and sit with concepts and and really explore what they know and what they don't know. Um, and so I'm excited about sort of getting to that pace where it is still moving forward. And as you mentioned, you know, helping students develop skills, but also uh, at a pace that allows them to explore their understanding and make some mistakes and then revisit their understanding um, and not feel like we've got to get to that next test or that next quiz because, you know, it, the pacing is 
is out of control. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to what does it look like when you have a, a pace of a course that allows for reflection um, in it and sort of see what students can generate and discover when they are given the amount of time that is necessary to work out ideas. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and I, I think for me professionally, I think that working that practice, specifically the math skills, um, I think has been where I've grown the most, but where I can continue to grow. Um, the, the the skills of actually looking at data, analyzing data in the right way. Yeah. And then, you know, not, not jumping to conclusions. Um, they're very, they're very quick to jump to a conclusion um, that, that may be, you know, unfounded. Um, so yeah, enjoying that a lot. Yeah. Reflecting. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when you are not teaching, um, you are supposed to be some sort of bike rider, but I can see your Strava. Um, <laughs> but, but when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? <laughs> yeah. So my Strava has been a bit um, sparse as of late. My, um, I had a, um, so I did a ride from Springfield to Boston and that yeah. gave me uh, a little bit of carpal tunnel in my left hand. Uh, um, and so I was advised to stay off of the bike, which I did for a couple of weeks. And now I've sort of gotten back into it. I, I do enjoy my commute. I like to bike commute to work and, um, it's sort of up in the air for tomorrow, um, <laughs> with the weather that we're looking at. Um, but, um, I, I, I do enjoy riding quite a bit. I, I'd like to get, I'll get back into the woods as the winter progresses here. I have a fat bike that I enjoy taking <laughs> through the woods. Um, um, I, I do, I do get a lot out of, um, a ride when you're, when you're putting in miles, um, that, that you could never do running or maybe you could do them, but <laughs> when you're putting in those kind of miles and you get into the zone and, and you're just, your heart rate is in the right place, your cadence is in the right place. And you're just, you're just moving down the pavement. It's just really, really, um, really rewarding for me. Um, I, I, I love and adore my family. I, I absolutely love, um, watching my kids grow up and enjoying time, you know, watching my son's football game. Um, just, just hanging out with these, these humans that I'm lucky enough to call my own family. Um, I enjoy traveling as much as I can afford. Um, and just, you know, just, just being, being the dad that's around, I think is, a, is, is probably the biggest, biggest honor that I, that I have. So, yeah. Um, that's, that's sort of what I, what I really enjoy doing. Jet, my wife and I enjoy scuba diving. Um, we, I'd like to get my Northern gear together. That's sort of on the personal agenda for the next year to come. So we can hit, um, hit dives off the coast here, which we're pretty close to and go for lobsters, um, <laughs> off of, off of Plymouth beaches or situate beaches. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I just, I just enjoy, um, being around, being around this awesome family that we've put together. Neat. Yeah. If you substitute out biking for running, I think I pretty much agree with everything. Um, yeah, you know, substitute biking yeah. for running and Sue for Jen, and then we're all we're all set. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. It really, it's just yeah. you know, it, you, you forget how lucky you are to have you know she she um 
she supports me in so many ways and um you know just it's just awesome yeah it's been a great we, we just celebrated our 20th anniversary so um just kind of awe-inspiring what we've what we've pulled off together yeah we'll be we'll be hitting 20 in june um ourselves so <laughs> it's upcoming june yeah. so yeah, that's why I've always been like, people are like, you coming to the read next year? And I was like, uh, let me see where the read lands. Um, <laughs> but exactly, I, yeah. I think I'm going to be okay to go to the read, but it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, the next two years I have, uh, I have my 20th wedding anniversary in June as well as the read. And then the following year I have my oldest graduating from high school. Um, <laughs> so uh, the read, as much as I love it, may come second to family and it always right. will. It always, it, it always will. It yeah, as much as, yeah. as much as I love that so all right well before we get to picks of the episode do you get any questions for me um i i actually had that one um that you had so i said as as we enjoy the phase this phase in our career and you actually answered this already but um where more and more resources become available i guess how do you find the time to either do them or do you just start to pick and choose um all right i'm gonna do this one but i'm gonna back off and i'm not gonna do that thing even though it looks like it would be great for my kids um how do you how do you find that balance as these things become more available to us um than i than they were i certainly in the second third of my career um how do you find that balance i guess yeah i i think i've learned um that as much as I am sort of, uh, I feel it looks, I think from the outside, like I do everything and I do a million things. Um, I have gotten much better at saying no to things over the last couple of years. Um, and I think that that was something I really struggled with sort of in the middle of my career. Like you'd go to these PD things and it'd be like, Oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'd have these summers where I had like four weeks of PD during the summer <laughs> and then I would get through it. Right. I'd be exhausted. I'd be like, Oh, I've got these great ideas, but then I'd be so exhausted. And then I wouldn't be able to successfully implement all of them because it was too much. Um, and so what I found, and this has really been over the last three or four years that, you know, I can really do like, uh, I can do like one or two sort of big new things every year. Like I think two big th new things every year is something that I can add into my curriculum. And then I can make some like, you know, like one or two systemic changes to my curriculum. Maybe like, how am I going to approach homework for the year? Or how am I going to approach, say, quizzing for the year? Um, so I can add like one or two like exciting like lab or project modules. And I can add like one or two sort of systemic changes at a time. And, and then after that, I say, and the other things are just going to have to wait. Um, yeah. or, or somebody else has to take the mantle. Like I work, you know, and I'm a, I'm one of five honors biology teachers in my school. Uh, and we work pretty collaboratively. So like, I will say to the others, you know, and this year we have two fairly inexperienced, um, honors biology teachers. So like our major thing is what well, we made some curriculum changes and we're helping everybody sort of get through them, but we really didn't, you know, d the systemic change is sort of our, our curriculum sequence a little bit. And, you know, how, right. how does the schedule, how does this thing fit within our schedule? And, you know, we've got like, 
um, our project. We're going to change our term for project. And that's like it. That's that's all we really can handle. Everything else is like little tweaks. Um, we're making like yeah. one big project change and we're making one systemic change. And then we're making some other little tweaks here or there, but nothing pretty big. And then in AP, you know, um, you know, I, Brian and I collaborate on that. And so we're each sort of in charge of like four units. And so structurally, we're dealing with the new curriculum. So, you know, making all of our like formative essays and all of our quizzes and all of our tests sort of match learning objectives of the new standard. Um, and then I went to a couple of PD things last year. And so like one of those PD things is going to be one of those modules. And so, and then, then my Lady Beetle project, which I've really been working on for two years, um, I really finished that last year. So even though it looks like something big and new, that was my big thing I worked on last year. So, you know, it's like I, I do one or two things and then I know that I'm going to be doing this for the next, you know, 10, 12 years. So if you make one or two big changes like project or lab wise, and then you do one or two sort of systemic changes more to be in the ethos of what you're do you want to do, then, you know, five years from now, your course looks radically different and is more in line with what you want it to look like. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good, that's a good balance to, to have because I, I do think it, it gets overwhelming. Like when I incorporated um, teaching the genome generation, I was like, wow, how am I going to pull this off? Um, and, and I think there were too many other changes that year. I forgot what they were at the time, but, um, like you said, like if you, you can just very easily get overwhelmed with all these things that you want to do. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I would also, I would also say that I'm super forgiving of myself for failing. So like, (laughs) like last year, uh, Brian and I overhauled our AP curriculum, like really radically. We went from a unit based schedule to uh, a storyline based schedule. Um, again, this seems really dumb now if you now know how the new AP curriculum looks uh, in the unit module. <laughs> but right. we started into a storylining mode beforehand, and when and we're we're continuing with that. And I figured out how to do that in the course of what we're doing, and and it works. Um, and I'm I'm very happy with the direction. But I will say that last year I felt we were very unsuccessful in our implementation of that goal. It was a big thing that we tried to do and we tried to do a couple of other things and some of the other things we did were more successful, but I don't think most of our stories were great. And this year we have the hindsight of all of the things that we weren't happy with last year and we're doing them again and they feel so much smoother and we learned so much from that experience. and I also am very privileged that I teach excellent kids. So we were able to support them through those experiments and still got them ready for the AP and they did just fine. Um, but we learned so much through that process that we were able to get, you know, we were able to iterate from that. Um, and this year we're not making as many of those changes. We're just iterating off of those changes we made last year and tweaking them and making them better. So yeah, knowing that it's a, it's, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, um, which works very well for me. Exactly. Yeah. I am not fast anymore, so but I can pour on miles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we are now at picks of the episode. Mike, what is your pick of the episode? Um, so I actually have to. I feel sort of guilty <laughs> for it, but um, early on um, in my AP Bio teaching, I was uh, brought. Uh, a book was brought to my attention and it's, I know it's not, um, 
so much a website, but the book was called Mountains Beyond Mountains by uh, an author named Tracy Kidder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book is about uh, Dr. Paul Farmer and how he changed healthcare um, for the poor uh, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I read the book and, you know, I, I sort of do a, uh, I, I sort of assign it more of a suggestion to kids, um, especially those that are thinking about healthcare as a career, um, because there, you know, there really is, you know, two different, you know, there's the haves and the have-nots out there, and the the world of healthcare uh, for the have-nots is a, is a is a tough world, and so um, that this is my, I guess, it's a book pick, um, and so I put um, on their website to. Um, for where the book is for sale um, through what's the group that Farmer um, started called Partners in Health. Um, and so it's sort of a donation slash you get the book page. Um, but the, the story is, is really a cool one because uh, Farmer's story, um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a kid who's really smart. And he's also, um, he, he doesn't come from a lot of wealth and, and he makes it through medical school and he he goes on to help the, the poor in Haiti, um, opens a hospital in Haiti, and uh, just does amazing work um, throughout his life um, globally for the, for the poor uh, through healthcare. Um, so that that is my first pick of the week. Um, my second one is um, a, a another project that I worked on through MIT, um, and there. Their program called uh, Scheller Teacher Education Program. Um, so MIT has a group who helps train teachers um, because they feel that perhaps the typical MIT student may not have um, all the skill sets to run a classroom right out of college. And so um, they have this Scheller Teacher Education Program, and that program put together a, a series of um, Simulations called Biograph, and so there's a link to that on, um, or that that I, I put on our on our Google Doc. Um, effectively, these um, simulations use multi-agent modeling to um, to simulate evolution, um, to simulate um, some some other um, different. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a glucose transport across some. Um, the digestive tract, there's um, enzyme, um, mm-hmm. how enzymes function. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we lose sight of um, as we do uh, animations in the classroom is that uh, molecules don't move the way we see them in a typical animation where, you know, um, an <laughs> yeah. enzyme moves toward the substrate because it's, you know, it's, it's thinking. Um, and yeah. so these, these uh, different simulations help to kind of show how you know, using using the modeling software called um, Star Logo, um, they they allow students to kind of explore how these different uh, agents are interacting. Um, uh, so that's that's my other one. Uh, that was a that was a, a fun fun project. Uh, all the materials are there on the on the website um, that I that I gave you too. Yeah, looking at the the there's five different um, models. There's teacher materials, student materials, and then the Star Logo. Nova model itself, um, which I imagine the students run in order to complete the complete the animation or uh, model. I would say, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's really cool. Um, it does have a lot of argumentation involved in it, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, I think my favorite one on here is the something fishy. Mm -hmm. um, to ecosystems. Just because it, it gets that genetic drift in a way that you don't, I'm um, sorry. Um, oh, something you know, fishy. Uh, just in a way that you, you don't typically see um, that, that um, populations can change just because of bad, bad luck. Um, you know, you can have a, have a, you know, a gene go completely, just go away just because of bad luck. Um, so that's kind of a fun, fun activity for them as well. Uh, that, yeah. That's the evolution one. Originally I was thinking there's a modeling of a pond ecosystem one too as well, but this, something fishy yeah. is the evolution one. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And I've used uh, John Darko's models um, and claim evidence reasoning this year um, as well. But uh, it's good to have a couple of different types of models for kids to look at. So, yeah. Neat. All right. Absolutely. Well, my pick is very much on on point, not realizing how deep we were going to go into discussing eugenics um, in our earlier conversation. But um, it's a post called On Race, Genetics and Pseudoscience. Um, it was published in October um, by the violentmetaphors.com. Uh, um, and basically it, it kind of goes through the history of um, how people tried to make race a genetic construct, um, particularly with respect to IQ, um, and then really kind of works through the data and, you know, explains the reasoning why, you know, race is ultimately a social construct. And even if you look at population genetics from humans from different parts of the world, that there is no um, genetic basis for the idea that people in certain parts of the world have superior or inferior IQs and that the um, the genetics behind intelligence um, are enormously variable. And um, that variability is through is consistent in all populations around the world. And so therefore, you know, the any argument that somebody tries to make that ties the idea of race and genetics and IQ having anything together, um, even if they substitute race for the concept of population genetics, which is um, sort of in vogue, if you will, in terms of um, now that mm -hmm. most sources say race is a social construct, um, you can't even say, well, people from this part of the world or the people from this part of the world have variable IQs. Uh, the genetics just doesn't back that up. And so this is a, a really, uh, I think, concise, um, pointed uh, discussion of those points all in one place. Um, uh, I think Brad Williamson posted it up either on Twitter or Facebook a few weeks ago and was like, every biology teacher needs to read this. So <laughs> if Brad th feels that way, 100%. Uh, I will totally steal Brad's pick and make it one of my picks on my episode. So, um, yeah, I remember reading it and thinking, yeah, I am, I am looking forward to that. All right. And it fits right in with what we yeah, were talking about. Forward earlier, to that. So. That looks awesome. All right. Well, yeah. Mike, thanks for joining me. Um, I, I super appreciate it. We'll see each other in just a couple of weeks um, at the New England PLC. I will put links in uh, if you are a listener and you want to uh, come to the uh, New England PLC. Um, I will have a link in my show notes so uh, you can get to the invite right through the show notes um, and you can join Mike and me there. 
let me do my show credits. Uh, you can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Um, it is on every podcast player. I know if you find a podcast player and it's not on there, let me know. Um, I had people at the read who were telling me it wasn't on Spotify, so I got it on Spotify this past summer. Uh, Patreons get an early release of my episodes. You can go to patreon.com slash lots and you can support this episode. I also post show notes there along with the early release of the episodes. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Show notes are also posted on lifeoftheschool.org and that also has a backlog of all 83 episodes um, all the way back to number one. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Murray Biology, even though he very rarely posts. Um, so thank you all for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. A lot of fun. Thanks for really helping.